Good morning. It is good to see you all here this morning. Just a just a reminder of where we're at in our sermon series. So like I mentioned earlier, next week is the first Sunday of Advent and we're going to be beginning a where we will be beginning a special sermon series uh, looking at the way God has come to us. Of course, that will culminate in the story of Jesus and how how he came as a baby into our world, but we'll look at the different ways throughout scripture where God has come to us. But before we get there, we are going to finish up this morning our series on the book of Psalms, specifically the first chunk of the book of Psalms known as Book One of the Psalms. So there's the first 40 or so Psalms are part of a special collection, and we've just selected a few different Psalms at random and gone through them and heard from God as we've gone through them. Uh, this morning, we're looking at Psalm 30. Um, and if you, if you don't mind, I'm going to read it before we dive in this morning. Psalm 30. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Let's pray one more time. Father, be with us as we hear your word. Lord, speak through me. Lord, and I pray that above all, the voice we hear speaking to our hearts, Lord, would not be mine, that it would be yours. Glorify yourself through this time, Father. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So we have, when we're looking through the book of Psalms, we, we've spent some time talking about the life of David. I didn't intend to do that when we spent time or when we, when we started going through these Psalms, but we've wound up doing that. We've seen in previous weeks how different Psalms can be placed at different points in King David's life. Most of these Psalms are ascribed to David. There's a Psalm of David right at the, at the top of the Psalm if you look at it written in your Bibles. And so we've placed these different psalms at different points in David's life. We don't know for sure whether or not these psalms were written at these points in David's life, but I think it's okay to imagine, to guess, to think, hey, this would have been a really good psalm for David to have written here. This really fits his life situation. And in talking through those things, we've seen the life of David. We've seen him go from being a shepherd boy, who was the youngest brother who was a weak brother. He didn't really have anything in and of himself that would make you think that he would be a great person someday. He wasn't born into a royal family. He didn't have anything. 
in and of himself that you would think he's going to be the king of Israel someday. But that didn't stop God from anointing him king, from raising him up, from protecting him as he fled from King Saul because Saul thought that he was a threat to Saul's throne, which he wasn't. God protected him as he fled from Saul. We, we saw how a few different psalms might fit in, in at that point where David's running from his life from men who hate him. And we've seen how God raised David up and given him the throne of Israel, given him this place of prominence over God's chosen people. Because if you remember, the king of Israel back in those days wasn't just a political ruler. He wasn't just someone who held power. He was someone who was supposed to lead the people of God in righteousness, to show them what it meant to serve God and to keep the covenant. God placed David in there, in that position. And we saw last week how David rejoiced in that, how David rejoiced in what God had done for him, how David rejoiced in how God had promised him descendants to reign on the throne after him forever and ever, and how David, above all, above all of those physical blessings, how David rejoiced in the presence of God. We see here something that may have taken place towards the end of David's reign. There is, there is a kind of a superscript at the beginning of this psalm that says it's a psalm for the dedication of the temple in the NIV translation that I'm using. The actual Hebrew there, not to dive into the Hebrew every time, but the actual Hebrew there is house of David. We know that David didn't actually build the temple. David wanted to, but David was told that he couldn't build the temple because he was too much of a man of war. His son Solomon, whose name literally means peace, his son Solomon would build the temple, and David could you know, maybe write a couple of psalms for the dedication of the temple, maybe um, you know, set, aside some, set aside some materials for the dedication of the temple. But David wasn't actually going to build the temple. Instead, David built a royal palace that really cemented David and his family and the city of Jerusalem in one place. And it was sort of this symbolic marker of the beginning of this dynasty, the beginning of this royal family, um, that God's favor was on David, and God's favor was on his descendants, so he built a royal palace. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but one of our theological forefathers, John Calvin, just has the theory, has the idea, and maybe he's right, maybe he's wrong. I think that he has a pretty good, pretty good point. His theory is that there was a time in David's life, and we know this from Scripture, that David was forced out of his home, out of the city of Jerusalem, out of the city where God's presence dwelled, by his son Absalom. Absalom took over the throne. He started a civil war, and David fled his house for a time. And Absalom, he didn't exactly take care of his father's house. He kind of defiled it. So John Calvin imagines, at least, that David had to have uh, another ceremony in which he rededicated his house after it had been defiled to God. Maybe that's the situation. Maybe that's not. But this psalm and the contents of this psalm fit really, really well with David's flight away from the city. If we look at the structure of the psalm, it actually kind of starts chronologically in verse number 6. So I'm going to start in verse number 6 and explaining the psalm, go to the end of the psalm, and then we're going to start back at verse number 1 and talk through it from there. So David gives the reason for writing the psalm the very, at the very beginning in verse number 6, he says, When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. 
We know from previous weeks, from previous psalms that we've looked at, that David rejoiced in what God had done for him. Because David knew that if God had not intervened in his life, if God had not raised him up, if God hadn't set a crown on his head, David wouldn't be king. He didn't make it to the throne by being a cunning political or military leader. He didn't make it to the throne because his father was some incredibly influential person. He didn't make it to the throne because he was really good at making alliances with people of other nations. David made it to the throne because God was gracious to him, because God reached down, picked David up, set him on the throne for no one's glory and no one's purposes other than God himself. David knew that's why he was there. And we looked at Psalms previously, especially last week, where David rejoices in that. He praises God for what God has done in his life. He praises God for giving him the throne, for giving him, for giving him this promise of a dynasty long after him. But this psalm is an indication that there was a point in David's life, and a point in David's kingly reign, where he grew complacent in that knowledge. And I didn't pick this psalm to be after Thanksgiving on purpose, but I think it really fits, it fits really well. Last week we looked at a psalm where David gives thanks to God. This week we look at a psalm where David forgets what God has done for him and starts to drift away. This psalm can be a warning for us. But Thanksgiving, you know, we had a holiday for it last week. But Thanksgiving is not something that we should move on from. We should continue to give thanks. We should continue to acknowledge God for what he has done for us. But it appears as though for at least a little bit of time, David moves on from God. He felt secure in verse number six. He said, I will never be shaken. Now, David probably didn't say that out loud. He probably thought it in his heart. In his heart, he started to think. He started to become complacent. He started to realize internally that where he was was his own doing. He forgot that God had got him there. Perhaps he reached a point internally where he thought, you know what, God, thank you for everything that you've done for me, but I'm just going to be secure in myself from here on out. I've got it from this point forward. We don't know exactly the internal monologue. We don't know exactly the internal conversation. But David felt secure in where he was. He forgot that the, end, that the reason he had anything in this life, the reason he was on the throne, was from God and God alone, and he forgot it. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. David was secure in his kingship for a time, but there, there came a time where God turned his back on David. The end of verse number seven says, when you hid your face, I was dismayed. The idea is that God kind of just turns his face away from David, covers his eyes, turns his back on him. And it's not because God doesn't love David. Let's not read that into here. It's not as though God says, oh, David, I'm giving up on you. No, David still had a firm love, or God, excuse me, God still had a firm love for David. But he turned his back on David for a brief amount of time. He allowed him to experience some trouble in his kingdom so that David would turn back to God. And whether or not this psalm is written at this time, we know that David did experience trouble in his kingdom. One of his sons got a little bit too big for his britches. He wanted the kingdom early. So he kicked his father out of the throne. He said, I'm going to be a better king than my dad. He started to kind of wield some political power. And eventually, he seized the throne from his father. His father was forced to cross the River Jordan, go off into the wilderness, hide. 
Much like he had many years earlier under the reign of Saul, David was forced to flee for his life because his son took the throne from him. And it's easy to imagine that this psalm, or at least uh, verses 8 through 10, are written from that place of weakness. The king David, who previously felt secure in his throne, forgot that it was from God and from God alone that he had the success, and he was humbled once again. God turned his face from him. God stopped giving him favor, and David was forced to turn back to God, to humbly repent, to come to a place of contrition, and to seek God's face. Verses 8 through 10, to you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. And then I, I find verse number 9 to be incredibly interesting. David bargains with God. The language here is literally like a merchant would be figuring out what is the most profitable thing for him. And so David turns to God. He says, God, what's going to be the most profitable thing for you? The best thing for your bottom line. What is gained, verse number 9, if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, how does that profit you at all? Will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. There's a theme throughout this psalm, and we see, we see different synonyms used, and we'll see it again once we jump back to the first half of this. But David here is on the verge of what he calls the pit of what he calls the grave. It's Sheol is the Hebrew term for it. He's on the verge of death. And the, the ancient Hebrew sort of, um, the ancient Hebrew picture of death, the ancient Hebrew picture of the grave, it wasn't as developed as we know it today. You know, God, we, we believe in something called progressive revelation where we don't fully have a good picture of what uh, eternal life looks like until the New Testament comes along. We finally realize, um, or excuse me, it's finally revealed uh, what heaven will be like and what hell will be like, but that's a little, a little foggy in the Old Testament. They really only did have the first five books of the Bible. So there was this ancient Jewish just picture of the grave, of Sheol. The underworld is the same thing where, where people would go and their souls would wander. And that's what David was afraid of. He didn't want to go down to this place where he would be away from his physical body, where he would be away from the temple, where he would be unable to praise God. David was afraid of it. He was on the verge of death. His life was threatened by this military intervention, by the civil war that had happened in his kingdom. He was on the verge of death, and he prayed that God would deliver him from it. He goes to God, he says, What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Who is going to praise you if I can't go to the temple anymore and lead the people in worship? Who is going to praise you if my physical mouth is lying in a body in the grave? Who will bring you praise? And so David uses this. He uses this cry. He uses this plea to turn to God and says, God, redeem me. I will turn back to you. If you heal me, if you deliver me, even though David had grown complacent for a time, he promises God that he will come back to a place of praising God if God will deliver him. Verse number 10, hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. And of course, because we've already read the psalm, we've already you know, read the history books, uh, we've seen the story of David and how it ends in the books of Scripture, we know that God does heal him. God does deliver him. Verse 11, you turned my wailing into dancing. 
You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Just a quick note there on sackcloth. The ancient, the ancient Hebrew people, they would have special clothes for mourning, for wailing in. If something bad happened to them, they would take off their nice garments. They wouldn't wear their Sunday best. They would put on literally a sack. You know, think of like a burlap sack that someone just puts on their body. They, make, they fashion um, some makeshift clothes. And the purpose of that was to show, to show their, um, their distress, to show their humility, to show their brokenness. And David pictures himself here, or maybe he literally put on sackcloth, but he says that God has removed his sackcloth and clothed him with joy. God has taken away the garments of his mourning, the garments of his troubles, and given him joy. And he goes back to verse number one. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths. You did not let my enemies gloat over me. The idea behind lifted there is literally as if, you know, someone's drawing water from a well. David was lifted up just like you would pick up a bucket of water from a well. God lifted him out of the pit. God didn't let his enemies gloat over him. Lord, my God, verse 2, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. David, who was on the verge of death, who was on the verge of going down into the pit, he wasn't left there. But when he finally turned to God, when he finally acknowledged that he would praise God for what God had done for him, God rescues him. God delivers him from the pit. He delivers him from the very edge of death itself. You spared me from going down into the pit. And so David turns, and he did once again what he had stopped doing in verse number 6. And he offers praises to God. Verse number 12, that my, heart, that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. David turns back to God and he offers personal praise. He says, God, I will praise you forever. I won't go back to that place of complacency, that place where I imagined in my heart that the throne that I had was my own doing. But I will praise you forever. And in verse number four, it's not just him that's praising God, but he's going to encourage God's people to praise God as well. See, this is a psalm. There's a reason that we have it today. And it's because David probably, you know, penned this. He set this to music. And he sung this in the temple, in the very house of God. David leads his people in worship. And in verse number four, he turns to them because of what God has done for him, and he encourages all of God's people, sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. And why? Before we read verse 5, I just want to make one more note about just the structure of this psalm. So it's a thing in Hebrew poetry that the main point doesn't come at the end. It comes in the middle. We in a Western culture, we're used to main points coming at the end, right? You think like Aesop's fables. Oh, and here is the moral of the story, and then it ends. Hebrew poetry, it was kind of structured in, with a mirror image. It wraps around, if you will. So a lot of the time, it ends at the same place it begins. And if you look at the end of the psalm, it'll really carry on the same idea as the very beginning of the psalm. And the main point of the psalm is found right in the middle verse. That's where the psalmist puts what they're really trying to accomplish. Especially, we can see that when there's a shift in the second half of the psalm, and we see that in verse number six. 
Right? That's actually where we started explaining this. In verse number six, David, David shifts and he moves on and he talks about how this whole situation came into being. But verse number five is the main point. This is David's point in this psalm. Sing praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. Why? Because his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. There is an, there's a view of God that a lot of people have. It's a criticism that a lot of um, you know, liberal types, that a lot of atheist types will levy on the Christian faith. And it's something that we, after hearing it for so, so often, so many times, it's something that we can believe. And that criticism is this, that the God of the Old Testament is a mean God. He's a God who you know, likes killing people. He's a God who likes having judgment on people. But by the time we get to the New Testament, just either the views of God have changed or maybe he settled down enough that we get a lot of teaching about, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and God has, God's really mellowed down quite a bit. So the God of the New Testament is a gracious God, but the God of the Old Testament is an angry, unforgiving God. There's a number of problems with that view, and we're not going to get into all of them. But one of the biggest problems is that what it describes simply isn't true. God in the New Testament certainly portrays himself as a God who judges. Read the book of Revelation. God will come back on a, on a horse with a, with a rod of iron, and he will destroy all of those who have gathered to make war on himself. And in the Old Testament as well, we don't see a God who is quick to anger, a God who loves exercising judgment. The God of the Old Testament is a God who is slow to anger. You remember the book of Jonah. It's a familiar story to many of us. There's the nation of Nineveh, Nineveh, who is a wicked nation. They rebel against God. But God, in his grace, in his mercy, sends a prophet to the nation of Nineveh and says, go tell them to repent. And if you remember in that story, God's not the one who's rushing to judgment. It's the prophet. Jonah doesn't want to tell them about God's mercy and God's grace. Jonah is, wants God to call down fire and brimstone on them. But God says, no, 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 no. Go tell them to repent. And the people repent, and God pours out his mercy and his grace. People point out, they say, well, what about, what about all the stories in the Old Testament, you know, where they're going into the land of Canaan, and they're, and they're making war on all of these nations? What do we do with all those? And we miss so often the idea that God had allowed them hundreds of years to repent, hundreds of years to come to him. God was slow to anger, in fact. That's how God presents himself. In the book of Exodus, chapter number 34, when God introduces himself to Moses, when he introduces himself to the people of Israel, this is what he says about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I'm not saying that God is not a God who judges. God is a God who judges. After enough time, if we continue to rebel against God, if we continue to hold on to our sin, we will absolutely face the judgment of God. But God is a God who is slow to anger. 
God is a God who allows his people to go off for a time, who allows his people to drift, and who always lets his people come back when they want to. When this psalm says that God hid his face from David, it does not mean that God was done with David forever. It does not mean that God said, well, David, you had your chance, you ran away, you rebelled against me for a little bit, you forgot who I was, you forgot what I did to you, so tough luck, you're out, your son's in, you're going to go die in the wilderness with your army. That's not what God says. David turns to God, and he says, to the Lord I called, to the Lord I cried for mercy. Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me. Lord, be my help. So God is gracious to him once again. When David comes back to God, God is there with open arms, ready to welcome him back. God is a God who is slow to anger. God is a God who is quick to forgive. That's the reason that David offers praise here. That's the reason in verse number four that David says, Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. Because even though David had sinned here, even though David had grown complacent in his heart, even though David had drifted away from God, God welcomed him back. God is always quick to welcome him, welcome his people back. God is always quick to forgive. There are a couple things that I think that we can take from this, um, and a couple things I want to focus on as far as, as far as we go. The first is that it can be all too easy for us, especially those of us who have been Christians for a long time. And I know there's a number of people in here who have gone to this church since they were born. They were baptized in this church and have been here for decades and decades and decades. Even if that's not true of you, even if you are relatively new to peace, if you've been walking for, with God for any period of time, it is easy for us to grow complacent in our faith. It is easy for us to let those embers burn down in our hearts, to let the fire, the passion subside, and to forget what God has done for us. It is easy to forget that God has saved us from our sin. It is easy to forget that God has given us eternal life. It's easy for us just to assume that that's the natural state of things, that that's the way it, it's always been, that's the way it always will be. It can be easy for us to assume that, hey, I'm a good enough person on my own, I really don't need God. Friends, that's a lie. And that's not a lie that we are convinced by and then we just start believing. That's a lie that slowly creeps into our hearts without us thinking about it. We drift away from God. We drift away from what God has done for us. But friends, I urge you, this Sunday after Thanksgiving, turn back to God. Remember once again what God has done for you. Don't let that be a thing that we do only on Thanksgiving. Don't let that be a thing that we only do once every few, every few Sundays. Let that be a thing that we constantly do, constantly remember what God has done for us. Let us constantly remember that the only good things we have in this life come not from us, come not from situations or circumstances or luck, but they come from God and God alone. So first, let us not slip into despondency and complacency. But second, let us always remember that God is quick to forgive us. I don't know who in this room is maybe, maybe in a situation of more actively fleeing from God. But I know this. 
that if you come to the cross, if you come to God to repent of your sins, to trust in Christ and in Christ alone for your salvation, he will be there. He will grant forgiveness. He will grant you eternal life. He will grant you salvation in Christ. I'm not saying there won't come a time where that salvation is unavailable. I do believe that. There comes a time when God will judge those who rebel against him. But don't run away from God. Don't think in and of yourself that you have enough to, to earn the pleasure of God, that you have enough to get eternal life by yourself because none of us do. It comes from God and God alone, and he will be there for those who seek, those who seek him. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning, and may we be a people who rejoices in what God has done for us and rejoices in his forgiveness. Let us pray.